Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Thank you guys so much for joining us. My name is Leticia Dietezwa. I am a senior consultant with Booz Allen Hamilton, as well as a member of WCAPS, Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. And we are having a podcast here on the 2019 NCOV um, outbreak, which is a coronavirus. And in this podcast, we have three individuals who are bright and talented and really willing to weigh in on what's currently going on with NCOV, what do we know, what don't we know, and what are some of the impacts we haven't really delved into yet. So on, on this call, we have Inolia Williams, who is a managing director at Drasa Health Trust, a public health organization that is based in Nigeria. Thank you so much for joining us, Inolia. Thank you. We, also have um, Dr. Suzanne Bali, who is a microbiologist as well as a public health specialist operating as an independent health security consultant. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to be on board, Leticia. And then we also have Dr. Taylor Winkleman, currently functioning as a coordinator for the NextGen Global Health Security Network, as well as a senior consultant for RMI. Thank you so much, Dr. Winkleman, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Please be here. So let's jump into it, ladies. What is our current feeling on this outbreak and how it's being handled? Well, um, I can I can start. Um, I feel the outbreak. Uh, so the outbreak, as we're seeing, we're it's being handled a little bit better from the way we've handled the previous outbreaks, but I feel there's still a lot of room to learn and to collaborate. So as they say, never let an emergency go waste. I feel uh, we have learned from the emergencies and epidemics in the past, and we are implementing those lessons in this particular epidemic, but there is a lot more that we can learn and happy to uh, elaborate on that further later. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with what Solzan is saying. I think definitely um, we can see some improvements. We can see um, some growth in, in the response mechanisms and things that are being done. But I also feel that there are gaps and there are things that um, could have actually been put in place before we got to this point that would have helped um, with the response. And I think especially from my perspective being here in Nigeria and um, just seeing, you know, after West Africa Ebola outbreak in 2014, you know, now we're facing this global threat of coronavirus and just comparing the two, um, it's, it's quite interesting to see um, definitely the positives, but also the gaps. I, yeah, I would agree. I, so I, I've been following the Johns Hopkins updates every day. And so uh, as, of, as of this morning, we're over 30,000 total cases, confirmed cases, and over 630 deaths. Um, there are about 30,000 suspect cases and 100, over 180,000 that are 
individuals being monitored, as it were. So this is a, this outbreak thus far has affected more people than the entirety of the 2014 Ebola outbreak uh, over two years. So from from my perspective as next gen from from my perspective looking at this and comparing it to previous outbreaks that have been highly concerning um i am happy i don't know that happy is the right word but i'm happy that the who has taken this seriously and has declared a public health emergency of international concern i understand why they delayed the declaration by a week, although I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, the thing that I do find positive is the seriousness with which national governments are taking this and the fact that they are doing what they think is necessary to contain the outbreak, whether those measures are the best or most correct measures is up for debate. <laughs> Um, but I do think that this is a very serious outbreak that deserves the international attention because I don't think we need another endemic disease on top of the many that we are already trying to deal with. Definitely, um, you know, a really good point that you brought there, Taylor. And just to add to that, I feel, you know, this outbreak, like the other outbreaks, is a constant reminder that an epidemic threat anywhere worldwide is an epidemic threat everywhere. And it's really important for us to remember that, you know, while we have learned, and if you look at actually uh, the SARS outbreak, the last big uh, coronavirus outbreak that China faced was the SARS, the first one. And it served as a tipping point for us, you know, um, WHO, obviously there were uh, international health regulations in 2005, five were reformed because of SARS. You know, um, there was a lot of changes that happened in China where they, uh, they were, there was reformation in their public health and emergency management system, in their uh, rural health systems. And, this, and that outbreak reminded us, where for the first time, it, put, it highlighted the fact of the importance of reporting outbreaks and why it is important to report very quickly. And I feel um, since then, we have seen other epidemics we've seen. MERS, we've seen uh, Ebola uh, in West Africa, we have seen uh, obviously the Zika outbreak in Latin America. And through these outbreaks and epidemics, we have constantly, I feel like different organizations, um, international institutions have made a series of institutional reforms that have strengthened rapid financing, rapid response. But I feel the biggest gap that we continue to face until this day, and which is one of the reasons why we see such epidemics uh, scale out, is the gap in preparedness. We are constantly in a cycle of panic and neglect. So, you know, every time there's an epidemic, everybody panics. But then when the outbreak is over, people forget about it. And they forget that in order to prevent such future epidemics, it's very important for us to keep strengthening our preparedness and our core capacities to prevent, detect, and respond. Yeah, I hear you. I think that's a really important point that you've just brought up. The fact of the fact is that we are in this cycle where we cool down and believe that once we've dealt with the issue, it can be pushed in the furthest corner of our mind. But our outbreaks have been showing us that. Do you, I'd like to ask the group because I feel that that ties into the question of really painting a picture to the public and to decision makers of the full scale of the issue that's some, that is currently being dealt with. 
do you guys think from a communication side that using, let's look at just uh, this coronavirus outbreak, that we as public health officials are doing a good job at communicating to both the general public and decision makers the seriousness of this outbreak and the importance of being prepared because the timeline of these outbreaks seem to be getting shorter and shorter. I think from, from my perspective, um, the way I see it is that there's, there's a lot of information being shared. I wouldn't say the focus is so much on preparedness right now, at least from where I sit, um, there's a lot of, <laughs> I don't want to call it fear mongering, but a lot of, you know, very scandalous headlines and misinformation flying around left, right and center. And it's causing more problems for us here than, than I think doing good. And I think the lack of conversation on preparedness is something that, um, my organization personally struggles with because that's what we've been shouting about, you know, since Ebola. And so it's so unfortunate to see us back in this place now, um, where we're once again scrambling, you know, trying to figure out how to get our lab capacity where it needs to be, how to secure our borders better, um, and things that we could have done in the last five years or so, we're still struggling to, you know, quickly put in place now. And the question we're all asking is, okay, even if we get these things done now, are they going to be sustained? Because I think when you're talking about speaking to decision makers, you have to speak their language. And it's very challenging to get them to invest in or prioritize what they see as basically insurance, right? So preparedness is investing in something that, may or may not, you may or may not need to use one day. Um, but I think that is a whole nother conversation on the economics of outbreaks, which, um, which I'll leave someone else to speak on. Dan, you make a, a, a great point. And I, from my perspective, uh, I have been dealing with uh, a lot of things on social media and seeing a lot of conspiracy theories, seeing a lot of anger, seeing a lot of fear and seeing a lot of the opposite, seeing a lot of complacency, people who are acting as though this outbreak is not important or is not, uh, there's a lot of comparisons to, for example, uh, seasonal flu. That's the one that I see a lot of. There have been a lot of articles about seasonal flu lately. And every time somebody shares it or says, you know, why aren't we why don't we respond like this to the flu? And I try to explain to them, well, we respond to the flu regularly and we have a system in place. I think we as public health professionals end up in a similar cycle in terms of, of communication, right? So we shout preparedness from the rooftops during, during blue sky times, right? And we all say, hey, we need to prepare. We know it's coming. Here's all the work that we're trying to get done. Here's the funding we need. We get shut down or we get, you know, 10% of what we say is necessary. And then an outbreak happens and there's a huge outcry of why didn't this happen? Why didn't this happen? Where did this come from? And there's an assumption, I think, in, in our response capacity that we somehow magically have everything that we need to respond. We're just not doing as much as we need to. Uh, and then lawmakers will give us a funding package that is perhaps adequate. We do everything we can. We try to say, okay, now we need to sustain this. Lawmakers sort of lose interest and we're back to trying to argue for preparedness and making limited, limited process. But I think right now we're sort of stuck in the response mode of trying to quell 
these really great uh, conspiracy theories that are out there. And uh, my personal favorite is that Bill Gates did this, which I, I find, <laughs> yeah, I saw that one on Reddit. Um, or we're trying to convince people that this is something that we are trying to nip in the bud. And the, the analogy I use when people say, why should I be worried about this is I tell them, this is like a fire in your kitchen. And if we put it out quickly, it's okay. And you're trying to talk to me about the forest fire down the road. And both of them deserve response. And we need to respond to both. And we need to have the capacity to respond to both. And so if we're not training our firefighters and we don't have enough firefighters, we can't respond to both. Uh, that is the response that I've started using. I don't know how effective it is, but we're trying. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. probably changing some minds. I can, I can definitely um, say that. Um, so, Letitia, just to add to that a little bit further, I mean, I, I feel that uh, they brought some really good points about the importance of risk communication, and I feel that's a lesson that keeps we, we keep learning, but not really fully learning and implementing from every outbreak we've seen in the past. So from SARS, the same, you know, information asymmetry was one of the biggest reasons why it led to a global impact of over $40 billion dollars. You know, uh, SARS affected less people than coronavirus has. So you can imagine the impact for because of misinformation, fear mongering uh, can be much more. And there is a term actually that uh, I coined in my paper, which we call the fearonomic effects of an epidemic. So fearonomic effects are the direct and indirect economic effects of both misinformation and fear-induced aversion behavior that's exhibited by individuals organizations or countries during epidemics. And you see that a lot. And it's not its not just fear where, you know, for example, and uh, I know Niniola will be able to talk about this a little bit further, during the Ebola outbreak in Nigeria, when you would talk to a lot of people, they would not want to sit next to people in buses. They were afraid of nurses and doctors. They were... and. They were, and there was misinformation going ar around. For example, there was a rumor that was being spread through social media and WhatsApp that if you drink a lot of salty water and bathe in salty water, you can be prevented from Ebola. And that's wrong at so many levels because A, not only that is not true, but it also means that people have a false sense of security when they do that. So if you're, you know, drinking salty water and bathing, you feel that, okay, you, you will engage in more risky behavior than otherwise. And not to mention that that strategy landed 11 people in hospital and two people dead. So just to give a little bit of perspective uh, in that sense, so this misinformation can be quite dangerous. Um, Another thing, like in this ongoing virus, uh, you know, as uh, Taylor also mentioned, there's a, an infodemic going on of misinformation. People are getting overwhelmed with information, wrong information. The other day, my own mother called me from India, which has had three cases, and she asked me if they should stop eating meat and that uh, she's wary of eating Chinese food because... Um, she's afraid that she will catch coronavirus. And this is my own mother, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, and that's the biggest problem because overarchingly, this can also lead to xenophobia. It can actually lead to marginalization of minorities, of communities. And this is 
one un- ba- major reason why misinformation, not only it can escalate outbreaks, it can result in risky behavior, but it can also lead to xenophobia. It can also lead to economic impacts. Um, and one way that uh, you asked earlier that, you know, how do we make sure, you know, we can mitigate that? How do we bring, uh, you know, this issue to the attention of policymakers? So there are two things. There are two ways to do this. First, we obviously have to make a case for investing in preparedness, investing in response in a language that the policymakers understand, which is, you know, talking about economics, talking about public perception. Second is also speaking to the public. You know, we always forget that public has a huge sway. And A, communicating risk communication to the public. B, making sure we can bring them on board uh, when we're talking about such policy changes is very instrumental. And uh, making sure that goes in tandem with, uh, you know, dynamic uh, rumor monitoring. Uh, that's that's another area to, to I mean, Taylor um, talked about Twitter and the conspiracy theories. Partnerships with social media companies, partnerships with uh, traditional leaders, religious leaders, that can really help curb this uh, infodemic. I definitely hear you on that. And I agree with you that there are a lot of ways in which we can improve our communications. I also would chime in that the communication that is being delivered needs to also be tailored for the audiences, not just public, um, general public versus um, policymakers, but also the I'd say continental publics in which countries and which regions you're speaking to. Um, From my own personal experience, I have found that there are many people who get the idea in their mind that there's an outbreak happening in this area over here. It has nothing to do with me. So I'm hearing about that. I'm hearing about corona cases in in India. I'm hearing about corona cases in China, perhaps even in the UK. And although it's getting closer, it might I may have this feeling that it's not going to affect me in some way. So I feel like whatever is being said, I can somewhat ignore because no one is explaining how it's going to hit me at home in the U.S. or perhaps me at home in South America or Brazil. So I think that's a really important area to to also bring into discussion that when you're doing this risk communication um, during an outbreak and even afterwards, making sure that you're tailoring your message to the individuals who you're wanting to receive it and make that change. But I, I would also uh, um, say, and Ninola, I'd really love to know your opinion on this. Um, what do you think about public health officials also being forthright with what we currently don't know? Uh, we, we didn't know up until the Pasteur Institute, I believe, um, spun out the the entire genetic code for coronavirus what was the code for the virus we had no idea really what we were looking for and do you think that not declaring our gaps in our knowledge outright actually left room for the rumor mill to fill this in or is it in our interest to only go with go with the narrative of what we know and um have others assume that if we're not mentioning it, then that means that we don't know. <laughs> I think definitely um, what you've said is correct. Um, here in Nigeria, the information gaps were filled. Um, I think it's just maybe part of our human nature to 
want to have answers, especially when something is inducing fear and other very strong emotions. It's hard for people to just settle on, um, okay, the answer is I don't know. Um, so definitely people are filling in the gaps. Um, we do a lot of work within the health sector here and also in communities and engaging people on this coronavirus issue, we've heard all sorts of things. Um, and you know, when you ask them about it, they're very convicted. They feel that what they're telling you is 100% the truth. Um, so I think definitely also the lag of information coming out of China. You know, it took a while for the world to know and really understand what was going on there. And these rumors on the, in the initial days of something's happening in China, there's some virus, people are sick, people are dying, you know, again, when there's not enough information and there's nobody being forthright about and, and clear about what's known and what's unknown, um, it leaves room for people to fill in the gaps with a lot of misinformation. So from my perspective, that was definitely um, a source of, of a lot of the rumors and things that we're still battling now and trying to correct. And of course, it's much harder to correct when people have already gone down the wrong course than it is to provide them with the accurate information in the first place. Um, and for us, it's also compounded by religious beliefs, cultural traditions, and other issues on top. So it's, it's a very complex thing when you're talking about communications around um, an outbreak. Thank you for that. Um, I want to open up that question also to the rest of the group. Are, what are some of the factors that we do have to take into consideration when communicating outbreak risks, preparedness, um, and maybe what we don't yet know. I, I think part of the problem is that science takes time. <laughs> and when we come across a novel outbreak like this, there's so much that we don't know and there's so there's so much speculation, um, speculation, sorry, and hypothesizing. <laughs> Tried to say both at the same time, that did not work. Um, there's a lot of speculation and there's a lot of hypothesizing about what caused it, where it came from, and we have to hypothesize to try and, and do the science. And I think part of our communication strategy ought to be, here's what we don't know, and here's what we're doing to find it out. I think we need to communicate our plans as best we can to the public um, and really be clear on our communication. An another one of my uh, semi-horrified and semi-laughing at rumors going around right now is that you can prevent coronavirus by drinking bleach. And so I'm gonna say it right now, please don't drink bleach, that will not do anything but hurt you. Um, but what you can do is wipe surfaces with bleach, right? So there's, a, there's often a little kernel of truth in the things that people are spreading and the things that people are saying. And so I think what we need to do is admit, yes, of course, this is a brand new virus. We have not sequenced it yet. We haven't found a detector for it yet. We haven't, and I'm not saying that these are actually true right now, right? We, are, we, are, we can detect it now. We can confirm whether or not it is in people. And that's happened very quickly. But when it first started, we had to we had to develop these things. And so highlighting that the science can move much faster when we're highly motivated by an emergency is one thing. Highlighting that that costs a lot of money is another thing that could help us with our you know preparedness talks later um, when we get 
when we have the attention that we have now, but also highlighting, here's the plan. Here's what we need to know and what we're doing to find it out and using that as an opportunity to not just communicate what we know and what we don't know, but how we know these things, I think might be an effective strategy for us to use as a community. Right, and to add to that uh, further, what and I thought, Taylor, you brought a really good point of that science takes time. And meanwhile, as Mignola said, in, while there is a gap, people use all these novel ideas and, you know, to fill in those gaps on their own because there is a big knowledge gap and people are curious and they're afraid. Um, to add on to what we can do, obviously, um, Letitia, you brought this uh, early in the conversation that tailoring messages specific to the communities, you know, to the communities that are at high risk, that's really important. So that's one for sure. And then the second is, I mean, what's unique about the coronavirus uh, epidemic, even since um, the last big epidemic that we saw, which was in West Africa, uh, it, you know, is social media has changed a lot. People are increasingly connected via phones. Uh, you know, people are um, have access to uh, new, I mean, I have cousins who are on TikTok, which I've never tried, but apparently I've heard things go viral on TikTok very, very quickly. Um, so while that represents a challenge, you know, risk communication in the era of social media is problematic, but at the same time, it can be an opportunity. And now we're seeing, you know, Google and Facebook partnering with uh, WHO, with the governments to strengthen risk communication. And I feel that's where one strategy that we can uh, implement to improve risk communication is actually bring them on board, use influencers, you know, work with influencers, work with community leaders, religious leaders to get the right, accurate message across in a very systematic manner. So I feel like that's one uh, big opportunity. And um, one example of that I'd like to give, so, back when uh in 2016 when we were seeing the zika outbreak um you know in in latin american caribbean and if you remember that was also around the time of the summer olympics so um there was a collaboration uh that um you know they did with this trinidadian songwriter and he recorded a risk communication song like he recorded a song with the communication on how to prevent uh and protect yourself from uh, getting zika and this song was broadcast by 112 media outlets across 24 countries. Now, that's a massive, uh, you know, uh, way to, that's a very easy way for us to get the message across. So I feel partnering with uh, influencers, partnering with uh, social media companies, that's a really, um, you know, community leaders, that's one way where we can really get the message across and make sure there is no misinformation and people are informed on what to do to protect themselves. And so th th I feel like that's uh, another example that comes to my mind is during, so actually in Nigeria, um, when they had uh, an Ebola outbreak, they were able to contain it very quickly. And they used a Twitter platform called Ebola Alert to A, uh, make sure the right message. So if someone posted a wrong, uh, you, know, um, you know, a rumor they would dispel that and they would connect with CDC, they would connect with, you know, uh, WHO and make sure the right information was provided. And then they also used Ebola alert for uh, monitoring rumors and also making sure, so someone actually, um, I, I remember 
in Port Harcourt, one of the ways they found actually a case was through Twitter because this woman tweeted that her husband's ill and what should she do? So she tweeted about it. So that's how they were able to get that. So I feel, yeah, social media can be a great opportunity as well as a challenge in today's times when it comes to risk communication. Yeah, and I think just just to add to that, um, very good points you've raised, Solzan. I think, um, you know, also another another point in all of this is the issue of trust, right? So when you're talking about pushing communications out, there has to be some kind of trust in order for that communication or that information to be well received. And I think that definitely using um, influencers, community leaders, and people that the general public or the target audience, for example, already has some kind of trust in, which sometimes unfortunately is not governments because a lot of times we see, especially here, when government is speaking, people are just criticizing. They're not even hearing what's being said. So it's often way more effective to use either celebrities, musicians, um, movie stars, even in other parts of West Africa. I know in, in Guinea, for example, during Ebola, people thought onions were um, a cure for Ebola. And so they had to do a lot of sensitization using celebrities to counter that um, that message. And then, um, you know, in Sierra Leone, there were some movies that were produced, um, all these local movies that people consume, kind of like soap operas. Um, and so they built into those storylines information that was important to um, educate people about the outbreak and how to protect themselves and what to look out for. So definitely, I think using trusted human resources, but also trusted platforms. So people already maybe believe whatever they get sent on WhatsApp or whatever they see on Twitter. And so definitely using those platforms um, as channels to push out the right information is another very effective method. And this isn't, um, we, we can see legacies of this coming down through the ages. Um, in, in the United States and Europe, it's, it's very common to hear kids on playgrounds singing Ring Around the Rosies. And that that is a direct legacy of the Black Death. It was a nursery rhyme that taught people what the Black Death was and how fast it progressed. And I've even seen on Twitter and, and Reddit people asking for Dustin Hoffman or Matt Damon to step in and end the outbreak. So I think those are really good points. And I think that one strategy might be to try and find people like maybe Matt Damon would be interested in retweeting some of some of the, you know, more reputable sources of information to help us spread the word. And I don't know if anybody's reaching out to those people either in the United States or abroad, but that would be an interesting thing to try. It's a great idea. <laughs> Sure, I want to a short screenshot out a tweet saying, coronavirus, please be aware of what's going on. I think a lot of people will resonate with that. I think we should all subtweet Matt Damon today. We have these UN ambassadors, right? Like you have Angelina Jolie, Matt Damon, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a fantastic idea. Yep. These ambassadors would also be really good um, messengers for talking about the economic impacts that these outbreaks have. I, I know, Sozan, you had met, you had touched on that earlier, but I actually think that would be something really great to talk about now. Like, we are already seeing 
some early stage impacts that these outbreaks have had, not just the quarantine pro um, protocols that have been put into place, but flights have been shut down, certain trading exports have already been impacted from China to other countries. I mean, are we, maybe that's also the missing part of the, of the conversation. Should we dive a little bit into that? Absolutely. I feel it's really important to talk about uh, the, um, as I said, like I call it the pheromonic effects, because it's more than just the direct impact of the outbreak. It's more than the mortality, more than the morbidity, because it's the perception of disease that can really trigger these things. And just to give a few examples, like what I've been reading about um, in with the coronavirus, uh, you know, I've been reading, um, you know, I was reading this uh, article um, which talked about how Indian tour operators think that there will be a drop of $500 million in the next year because of cancellations of Chinese tourists to India. So I feel while, you know, typically until now, we have seen outbreaks have this big impact, uh, you know, and, and when SARS happened, uh, in 2005, China wasn't that big a player in the global trade market. Now, China is, is a major player. So the negative externalities of the pharaonomic effects of the coronavirus are much more and beyond because of the trade. You know, uh, a lot. You know, Chinese uh, tourists make up a majority of tourists. Uh, to, you know, across the world. So that spillover effect can spill over to other markets. It can spill over to even countries uh, which have a lot of trade with China, such as a lot of countries across Africa, India, US. Um, I was reading that Art Basel, which is one of the largest art shows uh, in Hong Kong, it's being canceled. So it happens in March in Hong Kong, and that's being canceled. Um, you know, a lot of uh, stores have shut down, some because obviously government directive, but some more because of fear. You know, it's having an impact on supply chains. Uh, a lot of raw materials come from China. So all of what I'm trying to say is that all of this fear and uh, shutting down of travel is actually can have a huge snowball effect going forward. And that's, it's really important to mitigate that. And the way to mitigate that is actually, again, making sure that we are providing the right information, making sure we are following the WHO guidelines. So once uh, a public health emergency of international concern is triggered, there are temporary recommendations that WHO provides. And those recommendations keep in mind the trade impact and uh, the travel impact. And like we've seen before, during epidemics, sometimes the pheromonic effects can mean that countries will uh, go against those recommendations and shut down trade. They will shut down, uh, you know, a lot of travel companies will shut down. And this was a big problem in West Africa as well. So during the Ebola crisis, there were only a handful of airlines that kept flying. It was Brussels Airs, there was Air Maroc, and I think there was one other airline that was flying. And that actually meant we were not able to respond as quickly to the outbreak because we weren't able to get the medical countermeasures, the drugs, to where it was needed. And that was the problem. So I feel that 
going against WHO's recommendations because of fear and aversion can actually, A, it can uh, have negative impacts on how to control the outbreak, and B, it can actually result in huge economic effects for the global economy. And even tying it, taking what you've just said and tying it back to um, just fundamental public health, when you have a shutdown of trade or even tourists, some of the individuals that, that impact are substance farmers, which in some of these countries, in the area in China where it was found, there are a decent number of substance farmers, or quite a lot of substance farmers within sub-Saharan Africa. And when outbreaks shut down most people's sources of income, when they do find out that they are ill, they have the means of getting somewhere. So then they don't, as you, you met, we don't earlier that you can use Twitter or social media to alert public health officials that you're not doing well. Well, if you're if you're not able to sell your livestock, you're not able to sell any of the fruits or vegetables or crops to grow, then you're not bringing in money, which means that you're not paying for your data bundle, which means that you're not letting anyone know if you're ill, and you don't have you might not even have the money or the strength to go to your nearest health outpost. And for I guess from a more American perspective, when those when those elements shut down or cease, it also affects people here in the U.S., particularly substance farmers or manufacturers who are relying on the overseas market. And the more that that begins to cripple people's um, income, and the more they're having to deplete their financial savings or capital to compensate for that, the less able they they become to really maneuver and get themselves the preventative help that they need. They're more inclined, I would say, um, and please, I don't know if you correct me, I feel like we're, they'll become more inclined to um, wait out until the situation gets worse rather than dealing with it up front because they just don't have the time or bandwidth to risk spending extra money if it's going to be nothing. Letitia, I think you're right on the money with that. And and I think it's really important to highlight sort of the cascade of effects of an outbreak like this. Uh, and I was just crunching some numbers because I, I like to put numbers on things to help put things in perspective for people. So there was a Forbes article yesterday that's, that reported that the uh, projections for GDP growth in the United States were being reduced by a quarter of a percent over the next quarter because of the outbreak. And so I sat there and I thought, well, what, what does that mean in terms of dollars? And so this is a rough back of the napkin estimate, but if that is correct, if, and we've seen stock markets take a hit, we've seen trade take a hit, if that's correct, that represents $54.3 billion of growth that we will lose out on. And as I recall, it took several years to get the, the World Bank estimate of the impact on the GDP growth of the West African countries um, that were affected by the Ebola outbreak in 2014. And they have still not recovered from the hit that they took from that outbreak. So I think it's, and, and these impacts, and I think you just pointed it out beautifully, they have real world consequences for people, not necessarily for our rich people, our rich populations, but for people who rely on the global economy to keep them afloat day to day. And I think that, that 
being able to at least look at some of these numbers and understand that these numbers represent real impacts on the lives of people and that the death toll as horrifying as it is is one thing but the impacts on lives and the indirect impacts on lives that could shorten or end lives in other ways is really important to recognize and as you pointed out the unmeasured impact of the people that we don't find is a very frightening possibility that we really need to think about how to address so i think you're right on the money absolutely no pun intended so just to add to that um you know Estimates, economic estimates, we always have to be a little careful because uh, until to, you could have interim estimates, but they won't necessarily be correct. So we have to make sure how, um, you know, how, once the outbreak is over, it, that's when it becomes a little bit more easier to actually do an estimation. And um, the World Bank actually estimated the uh, direct and the indirect costs uh, at the, just after the outbreak was uh, 3.6. Uh, billion dollars for the uh, three countries that were most affected, Sierra Leone, Liberia, um, and Guinea. But uh, obviously, when you take into account the socioeconomic impacts, that can be much more. So there was a later study that was done that looked at the socioeconomic uh, costs, and that estimated it to be $53 billion. So, you know, the costs if they're ongoing and it's a little bit more difficult and challenging for us to do that in the middle of an uh, outbreak. Um, having said that, there there are studies that I've talked about and I'm really glad you brought this on board because um, this issue on uh, board, because when you talk about zoonotic epidemics as, you know, so diseases that those come from animals such as coronavirus, also Ebola, and actually also, uh, you know, other uh, epidemics we've seen in the past, even HIV, so zoonotic disease. So zoonotic epidemics can cost the global economy nearly $80 billion. That's expensive. But when you actually look at what's needed to fill in the gap, how, you know, the investments needed to fill this gap is, is much lower. It's about 3.4, the estimate goes between 3.4 to $4.3 billion a yearly investment while the cost is $80 billion at one go. So, you know, it's, it's much more. So the economic benefit of investing in, you know, having stronger laboratories, having, you know, um, healthcare workers who are aware on how to protect themselves, uh, who have, uh, you know, strengthening our local health systems, strengthening and supporting our nurses or doctors who are our front line. I think that's where it becomes uh, really important. So the cost of preparedness is actually quite low and the return on investment is really high when you take into account the overall economic impact of epidemics. I hear that. I absolutely hear that. And um, I wanted to ask the group in the few more minutes that we have, we've all touched, I think we touched on a couple of big topics in our conversation, the economic impacts, the need for preparedness, um, the gaps in communication, and this reactive rather than proactive process that we're taking to fighting these epidemics that end up being more expensive than standard, than the standard preparedness insurance would be. Um, and as you're wondering, um, whenever we are engaged with um, countries or entities about creating sustainable systems, the first question that I tend to ask people is, well, how durable is your system? 
how what type of, what kind of system are you trying to build? Are you trying to make a system that will look exactly like it currently looks right now in 20 years with this current demographic of people? Or are you trying to make a system that will change along with your population's needs? And I it, it's making me wonder now if maybe that's um, the lens of which we also need to give preparedness um, a view. Yes, it's important for us to be prepared. We absolutely need to be. But it is how can we communicate it to others, create systems that are in place that are, we're basically just saying, hey, we've got all the dollars with all these persons who are trained. And they do other things. But in the event that they need to be called up, they can also mobilize and tackle the greatest concern of a moment. Um, I wanted to ask that last question to the group and know what you guys think. And if you disagree, it's also fine. Okay. <laughs> I think I know the response to that. Um, does anyone want to give us any final closing thoughts to close to up this podcast? And thank you so much again, um, Noah. Dr. Bali and Dr. Winkleman for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you um, and uh, Niniola as well as uh, Taylor on this. So thanks for uh, having us on this show. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been a great conversation. I've I've really enjoyed the conversation and and I, I always sort of like to to think about what our next steps are. Uh, and and what our our next plan of action is. So maybe we should talk about plans of action as we discussed. Um, and I, I think I think our focus at NextGen is going to be on ensuring communication between our members, but also with the public. And uh, maybe tweeting Matt Damon and seeing if he'll get on board with our with our discussion. <laughs> I think that's our next step for us. I really like that idea. I feel the next step um, should also be to focus on strengthening our boots on the ground, making sure that uh, you know we are we, we we are collaborating to ensure that there are vaccines developed very quickly, making sure that our um, you know nurses and doctors they have uh, the personal protective equipment to protect themselves, and making sure we get the right information, accurate information. Uh, out as quickly as possible, and we can monitor and quell any misinformation and rumor. Yeah, I think in agreement with what everyone has said, definitely um, all of those things from my perspective, the things that we're directly working on are working with government at our points of entry, making sure that they're secure, making sure the people that are working there at our points, um, our ports, our seaports and airports and land borders are trained and know what to look out for, um, making sure screening forms are being distributed and collected and analyzed. Um, and then also we do a lot of work right now, you know, strengthening the capacity of our health workers. As was mentioned earlier in the conversation, they are the front line. And so ensuring that they understand infection prevention and control, IPC, ensuring they know what symptoms and, and um, the kinds of patients to be looking out for. And, and again, making sure they have the equipment from the hand washing you know, facilities to the PPE, the personal protective equipment that they need. Um, but more importantly, I, in, from my perspective, is, is the public communication because 
um, it's one thing to strengthen the health sector, but it's another thing to um, get the general public to understand because these things affect communities, they affect individuals. And so the health sector is there to respond and detect, but um, definitely we need to ensure that our, our audiences, um, as many people as possible, know what to do. Just one more thing to add on to that. I think it's also important to make sure that we're doing research um, on this. You know, early on during the podcast, we talked about how we don't know a lot about this virus. We don't know what the animal reservoir is. We don't know, you know, the full extent of transmissibility, how it's, you know, we, we don't know its entire infection cycle and so on. So I feel it's very important that we are working together, researchers from across the world, from China, from uh, you know the other countries work in collaboration to make sure that we can uh, curb this epidemic as quickly as possible and save as many lives as we can. I couldn't agree with that more if I tried. <laughs> okay, thank you guys so much again on behalf of myself and also on behalf of the WCAPS Global Health Working Group. You all have a wonderful afternoon and evening. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSnet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.